This is Nevertheless, a podcast about learning in the modern age. Each episode, we shine a light on an issue impacting education and speak to the people creating transformative change. Supported by Pearson, and this episode hosted by me, Anjali Ramachandran. Hi everyone, and thanks for being here, as Nathan said. I'm Anjali, and I work with Story Things, and we produce the Nevertheless podcast uh, for Pearson. Uh, and nevertheless, essentially, was started as a platform to highlight the achievements of women and young people in technology uh, and showcase how they're really changing the world of work, the world of education, the world of technology with their um, achievements and their passion. Today I have here with me two amazing women. I'm really, really thrilled that they've uh, accepted to be here today. Uh, and we're going to talk about um, AI, the future of skills, the future of work, and the role of female role models in a world where in most industries all across the world, there just aren't enough of us. So I'll quickly introduce both Elena and uh, Chin. Uh, Elena Sinel, sitting on my right, is an award-winning social entrepreneur and the founder of Teens in AI and Acorn Aspirations, motivated to make a difference in the world by empowering young people aged 12 to 18 to solve real-world problems through technologies such as AI, VR, AR, and blockchain. Chin Ritan, on my left, is the winner of the UK Entrepreneur 2018 at the Data Leader Awards. She's an industry-recognized technologist with 12 years' experience pioneering digital and data innovation for major organizations and in the open source sector, both UK and internationally. She's passionate about education and its potential to enable high-tech literacy and drive socio-economic impact. She started, actually, with a graduate degree uh, in economics from Cambridge and then she taught herself how to code in her late 20s. She went on to become the first data scientist to work for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, taking the role of head of data science, where she successfully delivered their first artificial intelligence project. And then she left to set up an edtech startup called Rosetta AI. So, to start off, let me actually ask both of you uh, how you came to be doing what you are today. Um, I've obviously read out a bit of your uh, path, uh, but it'd be really interesting to hear in your own words why you've decided that education is specifically important to work on today, technology is important, and that young people are where you'd like to invest your energy and time. I can start. So thank you for having me today. So um, I started Acorn Aspirations uh, when I was doing my master's degree at King's College London in conflict, security and development at the War Studies Department. Um, and midway through, um, I realized how corrupt the world of development was that I was part of because I was doing a lot of development work before I decided to pursue my further degree um, and I felt like um, I could be doing something much better with my life. And, uh, and I think the problem was staring um, in my face, really. I saw my daughter just entered so secondary school education, and she was coming home every day learning to pass an exam, uh, what I felt was the factory style. And um, I was disappointed. I thought, well, primary school was so vibrant, so engaging. There was a lot of project-based learning, and she was so um, you know, full of energy, creativity, curiosity. I could just see her blossoming and suddenly secondary school was a, was a real shock for us. Uh, all I could see was, oh, mommy, and she was aged 11, 12, um, I'm going to be taking my GCC exams in three years and these are the types of, you know, subjects I have to be learning and I need to pass those exams because then I have to go to uni, then I have to do this and I'm like, mm, okay, so something 
um, something spoke to me at that moment and I thought uh, something needs to change. Um, I need to show my daughter that there is something else that she could be interested in. So I started taking her to networking events and uh, introducing her to technologies and here in London it was very easy. And um, one of the events I took her to was called a hackathon. It was a hackathon for adults. It was Product Hunt Hackathon in November 2015, uh, in October 2015. And, um, and what happened was um, there were a lot of people uh, from so many different um, technology sectors, designers, marketeers, entrepreneurs, and just people who were really passionate about solving problems that came together to solve specific problems. And I thought it would be really interesting for Victoria to see what it's like. Um, so I was in one team, Victoria was in another team, and then what happened was my team won, her team lost, but she was learning so many things during that two-day event. She learned how to do market research, she was talking to people, asking them questions, she was pitching her own business idea, uh, and then eventually she was uh, you know, competing um, alongside another 10 or 15 teams, uh, went through the second round with her team of adults and she was the only young person. And I could just see her confidence grow. And the first question she asked me at the end of this whole experiment was, when is the next one? I want to go again because I've just learned so many different things. I learned how to code, learned how to do market research, I learned how to design logos, design thinking, you know, all of these incredible things. And she was pitching her idea. So um, and then I felt maybe she should go again and I started googling and looking are there any hackathons for this age group and I couldn't find any and so three weeks later I ran my very first hackathon at London Bridge um, in London Bridge News International offices so Rebecca Brooks office opened doors to me and I was really it was very exciting I had about 70 teenagers together with another 40 or 50 adults. They were entrepreneurs, techies, design thinkers, marketers, you name it. And I had the most incredible judges. Mike Butcher came to judge. Um, angel investors, some very high tech profile people that just were so curious to see, can really, can young people really do this? And they could, they came up with the most incredible uh, apps, platforms and whatnot. And I thought, okay, that was it. That was my experiment and I was happy to have done it. It was exhausting <laughs> and I thought I would never do this again. But then a lot of people have reached out, parents have asked me, please can you do this again? Kids have asked me, can't school be like that when we get together and you know, solve problems and it's project-based learning. It's something that they're passionate about. It's about developing empathy. It's about bringing them together to solve real problems like mental health, climate change and everything else. And people started knocking on my door and asking me, please do this again. And, uh, and I've ran more than 15 of them, worked with over 3,000 children here in London, in San Francisco, and have been asked now to go and do similar work in Brunei, in New York, Seattle, you name it. Um, and literally last year I decided to launch Teens in AI and that is because AI is shaping the world so fast. Technology is transforming our lives and young people and educational system in general is really, really left behind. And I felt like educational system has not changed in more than 150 years and something really needs to happen, some disruption needs to happen. And my USP, I suppose, my unique selling point is bringing communities together and putting young people at the heart of those developments. So they are the ones that lead that process and all of us just enable, get inspired and, and help them fulfill their potential. That's really what I do. 
Excellent. Thank you. That's really fascinating. Thank you. And I remember actually a few years ago, I was a judge at one of your Yes, you were. Yes, it was a girls only one. It was. Yes. And it was really, really interesting to see the confidence with which these young people, you know, got together. Yeah. Some of them were not. Obviously, it yeah. was probably their first time. But it's amazing what that can do to, mm. to young people. And I, I wished I had that opportunity well, when I was Well, believe it or not, age. some of the girls that were at the hackathon are today at the hackathon. Something is happening today at IP Soft Lady and Hall Building. There are a few girls that were at that very hackathon who came. They never knew how to code, they are now leading development in their teams. Oh, excellent. And that's what happens when you come back to these kind of events. We manage to inspire them to such an extent that they want to come back and then the girl that comes in knows absolutely nothing about code. And it's not really our intention to inspire them into code. The intention is really to help them understand that they are young, but they can solve problems. And technology is just an enabler. It is not a synchronon, it's not the end. But then what happens, strangely, is that they actually do become interested in technology because they realize that it has so many, uh, so much potential to offer. And suddenly, it just almost an, an unintended con consequence that they become coders and yep. they all go to universities to pursue com computer science. So. Excellent. Excellent, Shin. So I really was interested to hear that you uh, studied economics and mm. made a complete career shift uh, to coding, and now you lead. You know, you worked at the Foreign Commonwealth Office in a very important role. You were the first data scientist. I was, you? yes. Excellent. That's right. And now you run um, an AI startup uh, focusing on the future as well. So could you tell us a bit about what what your uh, journey involves and and what brought you here today? So I ended up effectively getting jobs where I could solve problems. You know, I was uh, I, I was just really passionate about it. I was like, oh, you know, there's a gap here. What can I do to sort of fill this gap? So I started off in consultancy, which is of course all about solving problems. And actually it, it transpired. Um, a lot of the problems which people were starting to have at that time, people were starting to realize the potential of data. Um, and because I have an economics background and Cambridge is, the economics degree at Cambridge is basically applied statistics, which I didn't realize at the time. Um, so actually I ended up having some of of the most kind of data, uh, data-centric tools and data-centric sort of thinking. So I ended up getting some really great opportunities um, in consulting because they needed someone who who could use Excel, who could do statistics, uh, hypothesis testing, um, and that just kind of carried on to my career. So I, I thought, oh gosh, actually, this is where the gap is. People want more and more computational skills, and as it just happened, I I think actually I had a natural talent for it. So, you know, I did a master's, I specialized in econometrics. Uh, I got the job as the econometrics lead at MNC Saatchi agency. And so it just sort of carried on through my career. Um, and then, oh yeah, the, so that's right. So I ended up <laughs> uh, being the foreign office's first data scientist um, when I taught myself programming um, in my late 20s, actually when I was working for the Financial Times, which of course was Pearson at the time. Um, and actually it was, it was when I realized that these skills were so in demand um, and actually what was frustrating was that there was a sort of gap. There was like, there's this huge digital skills gap. So few adults have the kind of skills needed. So yeah, I ended up having to do sort of huge amounts of jobs because no one else had the sort of skills. Then I found actually there were a lot of, uh, especially women and other gender minorities who were like, oh, I found that really interesting, but you know, now I'm sort of in, you know, say a marketing career or I'm in HR and maybe it's too late for me to, to transition. Um, and I just thought there's a huge, you know, if I can help them train like in the same way I did, I taught myself, I was like, this, this is how we could fill the gap. So actually three years ago, I started doing um, technical education for adults. 
So Andragogy. Um, and so I've been running basically sort of groups of uh, programming, teaching programming to, to mainly women. Um, yeah, for three years now. And then I started an AI club because I realized it wasn't just about having, for example, statistical skills um, or sort of web scraping skills. Actually, as we were talking, AI is the future. AI is going to be dominant everywhere. So if we don't have AI skills specifically as a vocation, it is an opportunity for us to you know, upskill ourselves as an economy um, in order to compete. Uh, I mean, there's things I, I can't obviously tell you government secrets, um, but you know, there is a cybersecurity war out there. Um, you know, I mean, we've seen Cambridge Analytica, Facebook. There is a there is a national security question for a start, uh, but there's also a personal um, kind of quality of life issue. So when AI starts to become more pervasive in, for example, things like health services, um, I've just written a funding proposal for this. Um, as an individual level, if we don't have enough AI literacy, we are not going to be able to access healthcare because it's going to be driven by AI. We're not going to be able to understand what the decision is. We're not going to be able to give informed consent. There's going to be non-compliance. And effectively, there's going to be a lot of preventable health outcomes if, you know, individually, we don't necessarily have that level uh, of literacy. So that's where I ended up being like, okay, I'm going to do edtech, but I'm going to specialize in AI education. Um, and although obviously there are huge gaps in the adult market, but I see the next generation, it's like, you know, they're the ones where if we don't, if we don't sort of do an early intervention, you know, this is the next generation's future at stake. So, so yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yes, that is, that's absolutely true. And it's something I know both of you are working on. Um, it's been really interesting to hear how you got where you are. Can you tell us a bit about who your personal role models are? Um, some of the role models are on the walls. We've, you, we've printed STEM role models from all across the world. Um, but I think it's very important for young people to have someone in mind or people in mind that they can aspire to. Mm -hmm. And so from that point of view, given that you are inspiring so many young people, who are your personal uh, role models? My personal role model is my mum. My mum, and that is because for a long time she put up with my dad telling her that she doesn't really have the same voice in our family as he does. Until such a time that she became a director of a company and she told him <laughs> that actually she had a, you know, a bigger, a better voice than um, he probably would ever have. So she was always my role model because she was a very strong woman, so she really was the one I modeled on. So, and I had some other powerful females in my family, such as my grandma, who, who for instance, spent the entire life just working with uh, deaf and dumb children, just doing translations. And she did this for nothing, just because she... So I had this social impact always sort of thread in my family and some very powerful women who really um, I, was, I, I role modeled on. But obviously there are a lot of other female role models that I'm aware of, uh, that I'm in touch with, and who I know support my work, such as Martha Lane Fox and uh, Joanna Shields uh, from Benevolent AI. So we do some work with Benevolent AI as well right now. Um, but then there are obviously also Shiri Kutu, who does the most incredible work connecting uh, speakers like me to schools, um, so that we could come into schools and inspire young people um, into technologies, AI, and entrepreneurship. Um, and obviously there are fantastic people like you who lead Ada's, um, Ada's List. So I'm surrounded by incredible female role models all the time. And I, 
would like to think that I am a role model for a lot of girls that I interact with through my work. So that is something I'm really passionate about. Thank you. It's been it's amazing to hear about that. I think it's really interesting you mentioned your mom and your grandmom, and I think that's something that starts at home. Uh, yes. So it's, it's it's really important that as parents ourselves, some of us, many of us, um, to, to give that encouragement. And that's where your story about you know trying to inspire your daughter as well was so important. Uh, Chin, what about you? Who are your role models? What made you want to switch? I mean, you, you explained how you know the move from statistics and econometrics to, to data and AI, you, know, you thought that that was the future and those skills that you gained uh, were skills that were, were much needed at the time. Um, but are there, in your personal life or your professional life for that matter, are there people who till today uh, you know, make you want to, to do more, be more, stay in, stay in the field that you are? Um, so I, I have to say, I have a sort of opposite experience. I, I'd love to say that I had you know, really strong female role models. The reality is that you know, I come from a culture where uh, you know, females are, it's a binary gender uh, culture and it's a culture where females are the second gender. We are inferior. Um, so <laughs> I'm happy to tell you that I was actually a mistake. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't a planned child. Um, I, had all, I have an older brother, I get on with very well. Um, so, you know, actually throughout my life, you know, I, you know, I just always thought it was just natural that, you know, I was socialized to you know, I was I was sort of more a supporting figure. You know, I'd be there to, you know, I'd be good at cooking and there sort of help, you know, cleaning and things. Uh, and actually, when I started to find an interest in some of these subjects, so my brother's a mathematician. Um, when I started to find interest in some of the same subjects he was doing, then I was like, oh, actually, I I don't want to, I don't want to just get primed to be married. Um, I kind of want to, I want to do this. I want to find intellectual stimulation. So actually I didn't have role models, um, but I think it was because I didn't have role models and I kind of realized that I was like, this, this doesn't feel fair. I was like, why should it be that, you know, my brother gets, you know, it's fine for him to kind of have all, all the opportunities uh, and why can't I? So that's when I started fighting for it. And then actually as I, <laughs> throughout my career, you know, I'd, I'd like to say I'm really proud of my achievements, but probably what you don't see is all the barriers actually which were in the way. So, uh, <laughs> um, so actually, when I decided I want to start learning coding, so I wanted to learn SQL uh, when I was at Financial Times, uh, my uh, manager didn't support that. So even though actually it was very useful for them when I did learn SQL, um, actually, interestingly enough, when we talk about role models. It was actually probably a, it's actually a male ally who'd probably have been my role model. So it was actually a Swedish guy I may have been dating at the time, <laughs> um, at the Financial Times, who was like, oh, you're doing, you know, you're a web analyst, you should learn SQL too, it's really cool. So he showed me, you know, he, was, he actually opened up the opportunity for me. Um, uh, and obviously I took it, so I'm not going to say, you know, I'm here because of him. But you know, that's kind of how it happened. It wasn't because it was a female role model, it's because I saw the inequality and I wanted to fix that for the next generation. Thanks. Um, going back to the role of AI in the future um, and the future of 
skills in general uh, to, to make young people ready for the world of work, prepared to excel at it even. AI is, as you both have said, uh, going to be a bigger part of every industry. Um, the service industry, the education industry, the medical industry. Uh, what are some of the best examples of AI that you have seen um, that uh, in, in current usage potentially, or maybe even just as prototypes uh, that you think will play a bigger role in the future uh, that show the kind of interactions that we might have to get used to and that young people therefore would need to get quite acquainted with as well. So for me, uh, the industry that I um, have a feeling will be will have will be impacted the most is medicine. So I see a lot of uh, stuff happening in in the area of medicine uh, with AIs, AI being able to um, diagnose um, cancer better than uh, the doctors can, and, and various other conditions. Um, so Alzheimer's, there is a lot of stuff happening in neuroscience uh, as well with AI, which is uh, phenomenal. I know DeepMind is doing some, some great work um, in that respect, but then also companies like Benevolent AI um, are doing some fantastic work as well um, on drug discovery um, and such. So um, medicine is definitely something that I'm hoping um, AI will definitely have an impact on, but also education, how can we um, use AI to enhance educational opportunity opportunities for young people. So for me, I really would like to see more AI applied to education because I think uh, we all learn differently and interestingly enough we did a hackathon in, on education with kids and every single child had so much to say about how really unhappy they are with school and with the educational system and how much better it could be if technology was used um, properly and if technology could be um, used throughout curriculum not just um, you know, an aspect, a small aspect of ICT as a curriculum. Uh, but then I'd really like to listen to young people asking them, you know, how could we use technology to enhance the opportunities? And AI often comes up as a way to create um, adaptive learning, uh, how to analyze how each one of us learns because there are so many different styles of learning and recommend something that really suits you better. Um, so, yeah, so those are the two areas where I see AI will definitely have um, a phenomenal impact. Uh, any specific companies in education? We mentioned a few in uh, uh, AI in general. And Century medical. Tech, I think, is doing some really, uh, some really great um, work in um, AI, uh, but also. Could I you don't explain know very a bit many. more about what they do? So Priya Lakhani, so you should uh, definitely look her up. So Priya is uh, the founder of Century Tech um, and she's doing some phenomenal work uh, with teachers and helping teachers reduce their time and be more productive. So I don't know exactly what AI is doing with the work, but it's definitely something that she's trying to disrupt education using AI systems. Um, what else have I noticed in education? I think there are, it's not only AI, but there, there are applications for VR in education. I know a company called Labster, for instance, that are reinventing labs uh, within education, but they're also using AI to also analyze how this is impacting and how this is affecting the learning experience and how ca they can uh, tweak and change and enhance those experiences. So it's the intersection of AI and VR. So definitely a company that I would keep an eye on and they're definitely conquering the United States at the moment um, with colleges and universities, but they are at the moment trying to break into a uh, UK market and it's a company based in Copenhagen. Um, and there are other companies that I'm obviously aware of, aware of um, probably making an impact more on the skills level, such as um, Raspberry Pi that we know of, Microbit, uh, not necessarily AI, but gen but generally the skills, the digital skills gap, which are doing phenomenal work. So, brilliant! Thank you.
Uh, Chin, what about you? Uh, what companies uh, in the AI space stand out to you uh, that are working on things that you think young people should should start getting familiar with? Uh, so, I think I mean I, I think to Elena's point as well. I think actually AI in healthcare is and health services is is really the the kind of biggest place where you could make uh, you know socioeconomic impact, which is my my favorite. Um, so you know it's the idea of you know it's. Okay, so obviously in, in the, today in, in the UK we have the AHS, which is obviously a fantastic service, but under pressure. So you know, if we can start effectively, you know, you know, so I have an Apple Watch. You know, it's when if we can start having kind of more personal devices where we can monitor our own healthcare better, obviously accurately, and that's obviously a really big question, uh, which involves AI ethics. Is my other favourite topic. Um, then you know we basically are able we kind of empower ourselves. So you know you don't have to necessarily wait to go to the GP. And, and of course the thing is if you actually have some of these systems, if we can design them correctly, we it may even be able to tell you you need to go to the GP. You know this mole. I mean I had this mole checked out. It was okay, but you know there are things which you know we're. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of things going on in my life. I can't be checking everything about me all the time. So if I had a system which basically went, oh, you're okay, actually watch your cholesterol here. You know, now you should go to the GP. Now you need to go to A&E, that is an issue. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing which I think for young people, you know, I think they can find that more accessible because, you know, they're thinking about, you know, they're thinking about how they feel, you know, they don't want to get ill. I think there are obviously a lot of other applications of AI, but I think for young people, that one is the one which is, you can see, they might want to have the most kind of, uh, they want to own that more and get involved. Thanks. Um, so one of the biggest problems with AI, I think, today, is that AI takes on the biases of its creators. Yeah. And the creators are human. Mm. So there's been a lot of criticism around how AI algorithms specifically are racist, in effect, because yeah. They identify all sorts of things wrongly, um, especially with regard to race and color. What is your experience of that, if any? Um, and what is your, what are your comments on how we can prevent that from happening as we go along, given that we're building things now mm -hmm. for the future? What are the lessons we can learn to make sure that the AI and algorithms we create are not imbued with the biases of its creators? Yes, we talk about ethics a lot. We talk about ethics during every single event we run. So today, in fact, we have 50 teenagers at IPsoft uh, developing AI solutions to six different challenges. And it's almost a compulsory talk that we do about responsible code. Why should we think responsibly when we develop any code? And the reason why we emphasize um, how important it is to consider all of the aspects is because we constantly see these uh, terrible examples happening over and over, such as Microsoft Tay robot, you know, the chatbot on Twitter who eventually started, um, you know, telling abuse, um, almost, you know, sort of fascism, you know, lots of different very unpleasant comments that were thrown by her back at people. So she was trained by the people, but if the people were saying horrible things to her, she then started repeating them. So I really don't like those kind of experimentations uh, when people develop an algorithm and they just want to test it. I think that we, we really as developers have got to be very careful what we put out there. Uh, because uh, AI has got the potential to learn very fast, but then it also has the potential to do great and also not great things. And it's the great, not great things, the bad things that we really want to try and avoid. Because when the bad things happen as a result of AI, 
that can be really, really bad. So such as Amazon recruitment tool, for instance, we expected it to have an unbiased algorithm that was trained to really, um, you know, recruit based on abilities, based on the skills, and then in fact we realized that it was still somehow choosing men over women for whatever reason. Yeah, or it was, it was uh, taught to, to downgrade any mention downgrade. of women's. So yes. if someone had a BA in women's studies, they were downgrading that CV. Yes, uh, which was um, terrible. And then I believe there was an example of when somebody was trying to um, Google gorilla and there would be a black person coming up in search. So terrible things like that really should not be happening. And uh, the way we prevent this is by really the, m the moment we have, we talk a lot about diversity, how important it is for teams of developers to have diversity within their teams. So if there is um, a team that's just male stale and um, you know, white, male and stale, then obviously they will just be producing the kind of algorithm that may not be representative of other voices or the people that they would be developing, such as an Apple Health Kit to begin with, I believe if I remember correctly, didn't really account for the fact that women have period. Yeah. Stuff like that. So, and that was developed by a male, uh, you know, dominate, you know, team that was predominantly male. So we really want to encourage, and, and it's the same that we foster in our hackathons and events that we run. We mix boys and girls together. We want to make sure there is fair representation of ethnicities, uh, gender, ability, abilities, disabilities. So it's neural diversity, but also gender diversity, ethnic diversity. So for me, diversity is a much wider mm. sort of spectrum. It's not just about gender diversity that we. Uh, emphasize um, and then the more diverse the team is the more the more likelihood uh, is that they will hopefully produce an algorithm that represents all the voices within the team and also within the society so it's really important that when we develop we take into account all of these factors and for me that probably hopefully that will uh, result in better quality algorithm. And of course, as Anjali said, it's all down to the values of the people. Our values really shape the algorithm that will ultimately be out there, hopefully changing lives for the better. So there could be algorithms uh, shaped by people with values not necessarily representing the entire world. So the kind of algorithm that will be developed in China may not be the same, the kind of algorithms that will work for the societies in the EU or UK or, or US and whatnot. And unfortunately, some of the um, terrible examples of algorithm and uh, how data is being abused are coming out of China, which uh, really worries me as somebody who studied inequality, poverty and war studies and conflict. So um, I am at the moment quite concerned and I think my concerns have been already echoed in Davos that AI has the potential to disrupt and create good, but it also has the potential to create uh, bad and horrible things and inequalities. And if we don't do something about it now, particularly at the level of education, we will see more disparities and more inequalities happening as a result of AI. And this is something we want to try and prevent. Thank you. That answers. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Uh, Chin, I know you're very passionate as a woman of color, as I am, about the issue of this issue of um, algorithmic bias uh, disproportionately often falling on um, minorities yeah. to, to prove, uh, to, to sort of solve. Uh, tell, us, tell us about your views on that. I think, I think you'll have a lot of interesting things <laughs> to say. Um, so, I mean, I'm going to hope that this is a crowd which, I mean, I don't know if we know that there's I don't know if you have to fight to explain to you that there's the algorithmic bias. I'm going to assume that you know, um, but 
maybe just give us a, a, a little short bit. summary, just okay. a two-line summary. Uh, so, I mean, I think exactly uh, Elena's point. So, okay, so what, what I'm going to say is that, okay, I'll do a really quick funnel. So, uh, see, so we start with pipeline. So, you know, let's say we have boys and girls in a binary world. And, you know, boys, especially the privileged ones, because getting into tech is expensive. It's not cheap. You need computers. You need all sorts of infrastructure. Uh, you know, you also need family support. So there are a very specific demographic who obviously have had access to that kind of education, you know, grow up through that career. And then obviously when they, people end up wanting to build AI models or systems, so those are the people with the skills. So those people have very specific experiences, backgrounds, you know, they come from specific kind of households. Um, effectively, they have very homogenous thinking. Um, and you know, unless they are really empathetic, um, it's going to be very hard for them to understand what is it like as, and then it says, as a, a neurotypical person, you know, or someone, that, you know, a minority, you know, someone whose parents are immigrants, you know, how are they supposed to understand that? And you can understand why that's hard. Like, you know, there are things which I miss in my community, you know, um, because it's their sort of experiences which are just sort of really far from what I've experienced um, as someone who has a lot of privilege in my own life. Um, so it really just makes sense, you know, when your, you have a specific experience, everyone around you has the same experience, you're building a system, you end up, as we said, you know, so I mean, this is the, the Apple Watch, it doesn't, if you see on Twitter, so you can set your weight and your height and it's supposed to like monitor your fitness. You can put on weight if you're pregnant and it just thinks you're getting fat. Like that, <laughs> like that's the kind of sign, you know, that the kind of people who designed this didn't consider that there might be natural ways in which someone might be increasing a weight. And you know, those are the kind of scenarios. I mean, another one, just specifically, so you know the biometric, uh, <laughs> so the facial recognition, passport, you know, those gates. So I don't know if you noticed, but they don't, they work particularly well, uh, I'd say for um, white men. <laughs> they don't work on me at all. All my friends have complete issues. Uh, you know, there are so many things where the the training data, you know, whoever chose that, you know, they thought very specifically about, you know, people like them. Um, so it really is no surprise that these systems, as we said, they're designed by humans. Humans make the, deci the, the decisions on what they do, what kind of outcomes, they validate whether it's okay or not. And they thought it was okay that this Apple Watch just thinks that if, doesn't care if you're pregnant or not. You know, so so that's kind of as we say. That's why we need. Uh, so you know, I wouldn't necessarily say diversity for diversity's sake. I'd say representation. So who is the audience? You know, if the audience, like an Apple Watch, is for someone who you know could get pregnant, it needs to comp You know, it needs to recognise. It needs to be able to, you know, provide that sort of service. So effectively, <coughs> if we don't have representation uh, of the kinds of uh, experiences that the person who used the AI need, then, you know, it's the AI, you know, garbage in, garbage out. So, yeah, we need more people who who are representative of the audience. Um, what, in your opinion, I know we have a few teachers, uh, I think, in the audience. Um, do we? Do we have teachers here? We do mm -hmm. indeed. Excellent. Um, what are some of the, the things that teachers can do? Um, mm. Some advice that you'd give to teachers in, in today's day and age to help them uh, equip their students with the skills that they need for the future? 
Well, I've recently come across this really cool um, concept of flipped classroom. So I'm not a teacher, but I c came across it and I just fell in love with it. So I really like it when kids learn stuff independently. And I, in the last four years that I've been running hackathons, I threw so many complicated technologies at young people. And I thought, you know, it's going to be hard, it's going to be challenging, can they really understand? What I figured out is that there is no challenge that is a challenge for teenagers, for young people. So the ages I'm working with is ages 11 to 18, so secondary school. Um, and what I find is the most important thing that really happens in them, with them and in their mind is they get inspired by a cause or something that they're really passionate about, whether it's inequalities, poverty, climate change, mental health. And then what happens is really magical is when they start Googling and figuring things out completely by themselves. So the rule we, um, we, we utilize and we, we go by in our hackathons and the, uh, the events that we run is first ask Google, then ask your friend, then ask your mentor, so we have mentors as well, and then come and ask me. Now nobody has ever, ever come to ask me a single question and most of the times they figure it out using Google. So what I tell teenagers is that really these days everything is online and there is no excuse, they don't need to a teacher's help or to be spoon fed or told what to learn and how to learn because everything is online. There is an intro to machine learning course by Alexander Ang which is the most phenomenal, Andrew Ang, Andrew Ang, which is the most phenomenal course on Coursera. He's a, one of the founders of Coursera. Um, there are courses on Udacity. There are so many experience, uh, online courses that they can just do independently without having a teacher tell them what to do. So when they come and ask me, well, where do I learn? And now you got me inspired into AI and data science. So where do I, know, where do I learn? I always send them back to Google and ask them to figure it out. And they do, they do, they come up with the most incredible things. You will never know um, how many kids you have in your class who are absolute geniuses when it comes to doing stuff in computer science and AI, because they don't necessarily tell you, but the moment you get them together and say, hey, today's problem, climate change, let's have a go at it, let's find out how we can use technologies to, to use technology and data science and all this open source data. Um, let's play with Kaggle, let's, let's have a look at um, you know, what's out there on GitHub, on Stack uh, Overflow, and let's find out how we can put all of this data, how we can put all of these technologies available to solve some of the problems associated with climate change. What can we do? That is your you know, geography, part of the geography. So the same with history, the same with all other subjects. You know, you could intertwine technology and you could use it in any, in, in any subject um, you know, in school, in my opinion, and using technology, particularly AI, is a really fascinating one because there is so much data out there you can play with. And let the kids to figure it out by themselves. All you do is just guide them, which is why the flipped classroom style, I think that's just what it's called, is a really fascinating one for me. So the role of the teacher more as a guide, guide. rather than, a, than yeah. a formal educator. You don't really sense. need to, uh, to know how to code and be able to code. I don't know how to code. I have tried. It's not something I'm really fascinated by. It's just not something, I, I don't see myself sitting there in front of this black screen doing code. So I don't, I know you, you love it. I, I just don't, my USP is completely different. What I do know is how to inspire kids and how to show them where they can learn. And then they go ahead and learn and I can just guide them. And I think the teacher's role these days should really be augmenting that kind of education and um, be hand in hand with technology, but not necessarily teaching them how to, but let them figure it out because Trust me, they always do. There is no challenge that is a challenge for a teenager at the moment. 
Thank you. Um, as founder of Rosita AI, tell us a bit about how you think uh, teachers have a role, or in this case, so is it a role as a guide, as Elena was saying, or do they have something else, to, a, a different kind of role to play as well? No, I, I, I really agree. I think, um, I mean, teachers in the same way in industry, you know, tech moves so fast, literally daily, like I'm not kidding. Um, you cannot be, you know, at, at these, each of these skills need, you know, at a minimum, like a few years to be able to become competent at. No one is ever going to be, you know, like absolutely expert at everything. And if I actually, you know, a lot of times a new language comes out, we're all learning. We all start from scratch again, you know? Like today is Python, tomorrow it could be Julia, the next, exactly. you know? So this is the thing, no one can be an expert. And I know a lot of tech people, you know, I know they position themselves as experts, but they're a specialist in probably one very narrow field or they're generalist, a bit like me. Um, so, you know, the same in, in teaching. So, you know, a teacher cannot be expected to possibly to be an expert in every single aspect of technology, you know, which you want to inspire uh, your students in. However, you know, what they can do, I think, is actually just understand what's out there. Understand where, where the tech industry is going or, you know, tech skills, what kind of fields are emerging, you know, and I kind of make their students aware. So, you know, I'm like my speciality is, is data science, you know, machine learning and AI. I'm not an expert in physical computing, Raspberry Pis. I'm not an expert in, uh, you know, software building. You know, I do a little bit. But what I do know is that those things exist. So that's the, with the young people that I have mentored in the past, you know, I've gone, oh, you know, you're interested in microcontrollers, okay. Here's an Arduino board, you know, these are the routes, there's a community here. You know, it's just knowing what's available and just making that, you know, accessible. And I think I think that's really where the key is, just kind of going, these are the things that exist. Um, and you know, if you don't you know, maybe like for example, if you're really creative, uh, maybe actually think about something like web design, think about creative uh, data visualization or spatial analytics, which also has a lot of sort of maps. Um, you know, it's knowing suggestions. I'd say that's where, you know, the biggest role that a teacher can play, so. Thank you. Yeah. I'd love to take some questions from the audience. I think uh, it's brilliant that all of you have been so patient so far, but there must be a few questions you'd like to ask our panelists. So feel free to ask if you have any questions. Hello there. Um, my name's George Bevan. Oh, I can't hear oh. you. <laughs> okay. My name's uh, George Bevan and I oversee Math, Science and Technology for South East Wales. Oh. So I am responsible for about 300 schools and it's a very different sort of um, type of child that we experience. We have some of the most deprived areas of Britain where we are. And for us, we are currently designing a new curriculum. But one of the biggest things is, is we are not thinking of the future. We are still trying to worry about the skills and they are relevant and important because children do need them. And one of the biggest struggles has been the AOLE for science and tech. So sat here, I'm very excited about the AI that will be in industry and the impact of my degree is in engineering. But how as teachers, who do, teachers that don't know anything about this, how can we equip them as a consortia to share that message further down into the schools rather than it be something that catches us up, you know, or we catch it up rather. So it's like, what, are we doing that in other schools here that we could transfer to our schools and educating teachers? How can, how can teachers transfer the importance of AI to, to the rest of the um, management of the schools? Yeah. Are there lessons that are being, in other ways, this is being done in other schools that they, she can mm. use, for example? 
Well, I'm at the moment um, arranging a pilot um, with a school, so they've asked me to come and um, do a talk about AI. So I, I do frequently do talks um, about AI and other technologies disrupting um, the world and how teenagers could be part of this change. And we are at the moment uh, going to sort of preparing a pilot with a school to find out whether we could develop or design something for a school to run similar events as ours within the school. But what I would say is that even if you were to attempt to organize a hackathon, the most important thing you could probably do is tap into the parents and find out what parents are doing. You will be amazed at the kind of parents you will find in your community, in your school community. And um, I mean, most jobs at the moment are digital and you will find some parents are techie, some are less, but they will be in companies where they will be able to help you find the people who will come and be part of your community hack and as mentors. And I think this is probably the best thing you can do because I don't expect teenagers by themselves to, to be able to hack you know, and, and solve problems. They really do need some inspiration and interaction with people who will help them and guide them. But the best thing you can do is really tap into the community of parents and the, if you are in a central place like London, for instance, it's very easy to organize a hackathon like, uh, um, like the ones we do because we, we have so much expertise in London. But if you are somewhere outside of London where maybe that expertise is not readily available, I would definitely tap into what the parents are doing, the kind of companies that you have around you, and bring the industry in. If you um, are lucky enough to be in one of the central cities, uh, Reading, London, Manchester, Bristol, then obviously there are a lot of tech hubs and accelerators. So get in touch with those people and, and really bring them on board for an event which will be inspiring. There is Founders for Schools which you can, you can um, invite a speaker to speak in your, in your school and you could make a particular request and say, look, we really want somebody who can come and talk about AI. Is there anyone out there? There are other speaker agencies where, which you can contact and it's completely free. There is STEMnet, uh, there is also Ada's List which you can become part of and I've seen some teachers who become part of Ada's List and make requests where in such and such school, is there anyone who can come and talk about AI? Obviously, if I'm in the city and if somebody approaches me and asks me, I'm always uh, happy and available if, if I've got the time. Okay. Sorry, there is okay. another question. So about transferring yeah. the passion of yeah. parents and, and students to the rest of the teachers yes, and Yes, yes. Um, and every time I, I meet parents, I always find people who are in tech in one form or another. It's the community that really makes the difference. So I would strongly recommend to really tap into the community of that school. And you will be surprised how many incredible people you'll find supporting this. Hi, I'm Maya Vanhanen. I'm, I come from Finland and we do a lot of the things that you have already talked about. We have flipped learning in schools. Uh, we have AI in healthcare. We have a lot of these things and we're trying to, what our school is working on right now is to get coding into the upper secondary school curriculum and we're trying to get it into a deeper level. We, we've been uh, introducing all kinds of stuff that has have to do with coding and AI on a very superficial level. Uh, and now we are in the phase where basically students and teachers fear the future. And I would like them to feel more empowered instead of feeling the fear. Uh, I would like to uh, also to have more international conversation about this, a panel where we could have uh, sort of the different views of different uh, places because I see that in Finland we do some things our way but I know that for instance Estonia is advancing fast with uh, education policy and uh, digital skills and AI and so on and Norway has a plan too but what other countries have we could sort of cooperate more.
Hello, my name's Anne Muston and mine is a comment as well really. Um, I have been in teaching for more than 42 years, I'm a Cambridge graduate like you are and um, I have worked a lot with international students, I've worked in state schools, um, I've worked as a, of, um, in the language schools and uh, in the last five years I've set up a company called Cambridge English Class, Culture, Language and Academic Skills Specialists. And the more and more that I've been around BET, the talks that I've heard with AI education, and we keep saying we are not educating our children in the way that they need to be educated. That talking yesterday, Michael Rosen, they were talking about exam factories, kids coming back and hating it. I believe very much passionately in education being a curiosity, being a facilitator, like you're saying, that the teachers should be facilitators and helping them. So. My vision, what I would like to try and find some people to work with me in worldwide, because I, I, I work with a lot of Asian com, uh, countries as well, is to find a way in which we can have children explore education using the AI, using virtual reality, and come out with kind of like a set of skills. It's the skills. Um, it's culture, because as you're saying, I know a lot of the things that you're talking about. I'm a northerner, but moving down to Cambridge, I experienced a lot of the things, particularly you're, you're worried about 2008. I'm, I'm way before then. So there's that, there's being a woman, there's the different nationalities, um, the racist comments that are coming in, but also education changing in other countries. So culture, how people perceive it is really, really important. The language, we're talking about not just spoken language, we're not talking about body language, but the artificial intelligence, the languages, computers, people understanding how to deal with that. But really it comes down to these skills and, and what these children can do. And as, as you've said, I've been amazed by the students that I've helped, the people that I've spoken to. And in my little way, in my last job, I could do that with the few students that I had. And it was so good to see them really engaged, but then they have to sit the exams. If they could present something, if they could have ticked off these skills by, as they come up through primary school, through, they've done this presentation, it's this, so that eventually you get to something that is like a dissertation project working together, then I think that would be much better for employers that's one thing that I keep coming across. Employers are saying, kids come out, they may have a university degree, they may have this, they've no common sense. They don't know how to fit into a job. We, we, we really need to flip education completely and start afresh because it's not what it should be. And I would just love to be able to find a group of people who wanted to do that so that we could get that out worldwide, not just in the UK, but worldwide. Thank you. I absolutely um, agree. Yes. Thanks so much. Thank um, you. I think that's about all we have time for. So I just want to thank all of you for being here today. It's been quite noisy around, but it's brilliant to have you here for your comments. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you to Elena. Thank, thank you to Chin. You it's been me. really, really fascinating uh, hearing about AI and the future of education and work. Thank you so much. And, I was, thank you. and just before everyone wraps up, thank you so much, guys. But there's, we have some of these lovely posters that you're welcome to take with you. We'd love to see them up in your classrooms. You should check out the podcast. Listen to Anjali. Listen to these some of the comments that you're here today and we'd also just love to hear from you we want to learn learn from you and it, yeah so it's neverthelesspodcast.com all this stuff's free it's all for your use we want to work alongside you so come grab a poster grab some stickers and thank you so much for coming out <laughs>